Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. Welcome. If you have your Bibles, uh, let's turn to John as we're continuing our series. We're going to be um, in John uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Um, and so the purpose of what John is trying to show us, the question that he is addressing is not necessarily who Jesus is, but rather who is the Messiah, who is the Son of God. Who is the Christ? It's a question really of identity and what John is showing us through his book in the Gospel of John that it is Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And the reason why he's showing us that is so that we may believe in him and have life in his name. Now, last week we looked at the text. We saw how John the Baptist identified Jesus as the Son of God, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, naturally you would think as people would overhear this, of John saying this about Jesus, they are going to respond. And so last week we saw how two of the disciples heard the claims of John the Baptist and responded and followed Jesus as they wanted to examine these things that John said for themselves. And so as they were following Jesus, Jesus turns around and asks the greatest question, like, what are you looking for? Like, what are you after in life? And they didn't know the answer. And instead of Jesus just sending them away, he invites them in to come and see. And so we see that, that, that as they experience this Jesus of Nazareth, everything changes. And so they spend the day with Jesus. And then the next day, Jesus moves on and he calls Philip to follow him. And Philip immediately responds and tells Nathaniel, Nathaniel, we have found the Messiah, the son of Joseph the, the, from Nazareth. And Nathaniel responds in skepticism and says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet we see how Jesus addresses Nathaniel and he takes his skepticism and turns it into a proclamation where Jesus displays his supernatural knowledge. And so, so far in the Gospel of John, we've heard the witness of John the Baptist, and now we've heard the witness of some of the disciples. Now, John the Baptist knew that Jesus was the Messiah. Why? Because at Jesus' baptism, the Spirit descended on Jesus and remained on Jesus. And, and God told John the Baptist, whoever you see the Spirit remains and descend and remains on is the promised one. But how did the question is, how did the disciples know that Jesus was the Messiah? We know how John the Baptist knew but we don't really know how the disciples knew. And what we're going to see with, with this question, how did the disciples know that Jesus was the Messiah, John is going to show us in the rest of his book. Now, now in chapter 2, we're kind of entering into a new section, a, a new account that begins with the public ministry of, of Jesus. And so I think it's helpful for us that as we enter into this section is to look at the rest of the book of John and kind of divide it up in two parts based on this question. How did the disciples know that Jesus was the Messiah? Well, John is going to show us in the first part of his book, so if you're taking notes, like from John chapter 2 all the way to John chapter 12, Jesus reveals his glory. And then in John chapter 13 all the way to John chapter 21, Jesus receives glory. And so how did the disciples know that Jesus was the Messiah? Because all the way from chapter 2 to chapter 12, Jesus is going to reveal his glory. 
So they know that he is the Messiah because they have seen his glory. And then for the rest of the book, they're going to see how Jesus receives his glory. Now, obviously, I can just tell you that, but I need to show you that in the rest of our text. So for the rest of the couple months, as we go through John chapter 2, all the way through chapter 12, we're going to see how Jesus reveals his glory. But what's really interesting in this little subdivision of this section over the next couple weeks and the next couple chapters, we're going to see this common theme. And this theme is kind of the theme that Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, where Paul talks about the old has gone and the new has come. And so the theme we're going to see in for the rest of our, uh, in, in this text today and also in the next couple chapters is how the old has gone and the new has come. So, so today we're going to see the replacement of the old purification system by the new wine of the kingdom of God. Next week, as we look at the temple, we're going to see how the old temple is going to be replaced by the new temple, the risen Lord. When Jesus interacts with Nicodemus, he's going to talk about the new birth for the new creation. When Jesus meets the woman at the well, he's going to contrast the water of Jacob's well and the living water that comes from Jesus. The worship in Jerusalem to a new worship of spirit and in truth. And so we're going to see the old made new. The old is gone and the new has come. And so today, as we look at our text in John chapter 2, as we see Jesus turning water into wine, at first glance, we're like, what's the point of this miracle? And I'm just going to tell you right off the bat, my purpose is not to talk about alcohol for the Christian. Like, if you hear somebody use this text for alcohol for the Christian, you need to tell them, you're missing the point, buddy. That's not the point. What we need to do is, as we look at this text, we need to dig a little deeper. We've got to ask ourselves, what's really going on in this text? What is the cultural background, the religious context that Jesus is speaking to? What is John trying to show us in all of this? And my goal is as we dig a little deeper and we look at the cultural context and we look at the religious context, we now start to see the message that John is trying to convey about Jesus. So, So let's get into our text And look at verse 1, John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. And when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. Okay, let's stop here and let's do our work. Let's dig, dig, dig deep. Let's see what's really going on in this text. So obviously, the scene picks up at a wedding in Cana. And who's in attendance? We know Jesus is in attendance. His mother Mary is in attendance and his disciples. And so the question is, okay, who are these disciples? And so we know right off the bat, if we follow the narrative of John, the disciples who've already accompanied Jesus is Andrew, is Peter, is Philip, Nathaniel, and then the unnamed disciple we don't know about, but we all know who the unnamed disciple is. His name is John. So all of these people are attending a wedding. Well, whose wedding is it? We don't know. 
But the fact that Jesus and his mother and his disciples are invited, more than likely, this suggests this was a wedding either of a relative or a close family friend. And what does a wedding celebration look like in that context? Well, in this context, a wedding celebration could last up to a week. And it was the financial responsibility of the groom to entertain the guests of not only the groom but also the bride for a whole week. They ought to provide for the, for the drink, for the food, for lodging, for houses. It was a feast that lasted for up to a week. And when any supply would run out, especially in a culture filled with shame, it's one of the most embarrassing things that could ever happen. And this was actually such a big deal that the parents of the bride could actually file a lawsuit against the groom as being unfit. Because if you cannot provide for us and our family for a week, there is no way you can provide for my little girl and my grandchildren for the rest of her life. Shame on you. So this wasn't just an observation that Mary made. This is a big problem here. And so it's not impossible for Mary. Maybe she assumed some responsibility or maybe she was in charge of something for the catering and the wedding because... We know that more than likely it was a close family friend or a relative. And it was all the relatives that played part of the groom to make sure this wedding goes well. And Mary says, oh no, here is a dreadful problem, the most embarrassing problem. It is catastrophic. We are running out of wine. And so, and so many people kind of have a tendency to argue, like, okay, like, like why does Mary bring this problem to Jesus' attention? Some people might argue and say, well, she was just simply passing on the bad news without any expectation. But we know that's not true because if you look at verse 5, she tells the servants in verse 5, do whatever he tells you. So in other words, she didn't just come to present the bad news and say, oh, wow, what are we going to do? There was somewhat of an expectation. She says, do, do whatever he tells you. Some even argue that the reason why Mary came to Jesus is because she was expecting a miracle. Because maybe Jesus' entire life performed miracles, and she knew her son was special. And so you read the Gospel of Thomas of how Jesus took a little dead dove and blew in it, and all of a sudden the dove flew away. But here's the problem. We don't know who Thomas is. We don't know where he's from. We don't know if he made it up, whether it's true or false. But what does the Bible say? Look at verse 11. What does verse 11 tell us? Does John say he performed many miracles? Or does he say this is the first sign? So the text tells us, John tells us, that this is the first sign, a.k.a. the first miracle. In application, I'll tell you the difference between a miracle and a sign. This is the first. So this is not a good interpretation either. So why does Mary go to Jesus with this problem? 
I think the best explanation is because Mary for so long had relied on the resourcefulness of her firstborn son, Jesus. Now, many believe by this time, uh, Mary was a widow because we don't read anything in this text about Joseph. The last time we actually read about Joseph is in Matthew when Jesus was 12 and he was in the temple and he didn't go with them. Other than that, we don't read anything about Joseph whatsoever. And so more than likely, Joseph have passed away. And Jesus is not only known as the carpenter's son, but also as the carpenter. And so more than likely, like Mary is relying on the resourcefulness of Jesus as part of Jesus' responsibility as the oldest son to provide for his family. And we know he did this through his trade as being a carpenter. And more than likely, again, what does Mary do? What she's always done? She relies on the resource, resourcefulness of her son, her firstborn son, hoping he would offer a solution to this dreadful problem. You guys are understanding? But then we read verse 4. Look, look at verse 4 here. Look at the strange response. What does that have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Now, for some of you, your translation is going to say a complete different thing, more or less jumbling up words. Because this is a very difficult text for us to understand. First of all, that's a very strange response. Is that how you really talk to your mother, Jesus? Like, like what's going on here? I think the very first thing that's going on is Jesus is responding in a rebuke. In a sense, he is rebuking his mother, but he's also doing it in a courteous way. And the reason why we say a courteous way, because in some of your translations it will say lady, woman, dear woman. The problem with that Greek word is there is no good English word for it. So we know that it was in a courteous way because it's in a courteous term. It's not an endearing, loving term, but it's also not a disrespectful term. When we read woman in our culture, a son addressing his mom, how do we see it as? Respectful or disrespectful? Disrespectful. But that's not what's going on in the text. And so that's why in some of your translations it says, dear woman, because there's no good English word. But let's just focus on this part, the first part. Why does Jesus rebuke his very own mother? Here's what we have to understand. The reason why he rebukes his own mother in a very courteous way is because after his baptism, his ministry and his only purpose has now begun. What is his ministry and what is his only purpose? To do the will of the Father. And to do the will of the Father and the Father alone, he must be free from any kind of human advice, agenda, or any kind of manipulation. And this must have been very difficult for Mary because not only did she birth him, but she nursed him, she taught him, she saw him as a toddler stumbling when he's trying to walk. 
She's even relied on the resourcefulness of her son. But now Jesus enters into this purpose of why he came. And every single family tie must be put aside for him to accomplish his mission. No longer can she view him like all mothers view their own son. She can no longer have the privilege of motherhood in a sense. Boy, you better listen because I'm still your mama. That can't be the case anymore. And we see even the pains that Jesus goes through to distance himself from his family. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus' family comes to him, the disciples are saying, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside waiting for you, a.k.a. they need you right now. You need to drop everything because that's your responsibility. And what does Jesus say? He says in verse 46 to 50, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hands towards his disciples and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. And this is not a callous part on on Jesus' part. Because on the cross, he makes, in a sense, provision for his very own mother. He looks to John, and he looks to his mom. He says, there's your son. There's your mom. Please take care of her. But she, Mary, like every other person, must come to Jesus, not as her son that she birthed and nursed and trained, but rather as the promised one, the Messiah, the Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There could be no inside track. And this is why, in a sense, Jesus rebukes his mother. And what is the reason for it? He gives us reasons why he's distancing himself between himself and his mother in light of the cross. He says, my time, verse 4, my hour has not yet come. And in some of your translations, my, my time has not yet come. And that time literally means hour. What's he referring to? He's referring to his death on the cross. Because that's why he came. His entire exaltation is bound up through his death on the cross. And by Jesus constantly saying that my hour has not come as he's referring to his death, burial, resurrection, we're going to find out in the first couple chapters, from chapter 2 to chapter 12, is not yet. And then from chapter 13 on, we will see that now it has arrived. And so After a gentle rebuke, my time has not yet come. I need to separate myself from my family because I need to do the Father's will. I've come for one purpose and one purpose only. And my mother can no longer view me as her little boy. She needs to see me as the Messiah. She needs to come to me for salvation. Look at how Mary responds in verse 5. Do whatever he tells you. His mother told the servant. So, so in Mary saying this, she kind of shakes off this gentle rebuke, but then she also exemplifies a kind of persevering faith. Like she is rebuked by presuming on family ties 
and yet she displays this idea of faith to leave the matter into Jesus' hands. In other words, she doesn't just say, you know I'm your mother, you know all that I've done for you, as mothers would like to use sometimes intimidation to get manipulation to get their way. I'm going to get myself in trouble. I need to stop here. She shakes it off. And in a sense, by she telling the servants, do whatever he tells you, she's leaving it up to Jesus. I'm not telling you what to do. You, listen to what he has to say. If he doesn't tell you anything, you don't do anything. If he tells you something, you do whatever he tells you. And really what we see is she shakes off this rebuke and she exemplifies faith as she leaves it up to the hands of Jesus. And we see this pattern occur in other parts of the Gospel of John where Jesus initially refuses to help, but then as people are persistent in faith, he he responds as they are further demonstrating faith. So so in a sense, verse 3, Mary is uh, is, is rebuked for kind of wanting to use this inside track But then in verse 5, she responds as a believer, and in faith, she honors Jesus. She says, it's entirely up to him. It's all in his hands. She still does not know what he would do, but ultimately, she committed the matter to him, and she's trusting him. Now, here's a little side note. Let's not get distracted by the faith of Mary. It's not about that. What's the original question we asked? How did the disciples know that Jesus is the Messiah? And we said they knew it because Jesus reveals his glory. What's this text all about? How Jesus is revealing his glory. That must be the focus of our text. So let's not get sidetracked. Let's acknowledge her faith. Good. But let's keep the focus to focus, Jesus and his glory. Look, look at verse 6. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. Let's stop here. Now, many interpreters, many scholars believe that Jesus told the servants, as we read in the text, to take these six uh, jars of stone and fill it up with water to the brim. And then as they filled it up, the miracle took place as they drew water out of these jars and they took it to the head waiter or the master banquet, the, 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 the wedding organizer for him to take a sip of it. And the miracle took place when they drew water out of these six jars. That's how we commonly understand this story. However, I think that might not be correct. Let me give a preface. I could be wrong, and it's okay for you to disagree with me. And even if I say, I don't think this is it, is different, I think our application and our significance remains the same. It doesn't change the story. I do think the interpretation I'm leaning towards basically adds an exclamation mark to the significance in the application, but it yet remains the same. Are you guys 
You understand that? That's my preface, okay? This is why I think the interpretation might be wrong. Look at verse 8. Then he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. The word draw, the Greek word enteleo, a verb, is used for drawing water out of a well. That, that's what that word means. So when you say enteleo, go to the well and draw water out of it. And the reason why I think if you look at verse, the first part of verse 8, he says, now. So in other words, what I think the best interpretation is, and again, I can be wrong, Jesus tells his servants, tell the servants, here are these six purification jars. Fill them up to the brim. Now, these purification jars were used to wash utensils. They were used to wash hands, anything that had to do with ceremonial washing. They, in a sense, represented the old purification system. Jesus says, fill them up, and then I think they put it to the side. And then he says, now go draw water from and bring it. And so, in a sense, they're going to the well, and they're drawing water out of the well. And as they're drawing water out of the well, it's turning into wine, and they're bringing it to the head, the head uh, guy who tastes all the wine. And what really we're seeing happening is up to this point, the time the servants had, water, uh, had to draw water to fill the wet vessels and use it for ceremonial washing, Jesus was doing completely something new. Because again, what is the theme we're seeing? We're seeing the old is gone, the new has come. Here's the old, filled with water, put to the side. And what I'm going to do is something completely new. We're going to talk about significance and application in a moment, but let's keep moving on, okay? Let's look at the response. Look at verse 9. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the groom and told him everything. everyone sets out the fine wine first, then after people are drunk, the inferior... But you have kept the fine wine until now. And so the reason why the head waiter is addressing the groom is because the groom is responsible for providing the food and the drink. And he is saying, this wine is so good because it beats the very first wine that we were drinking. Because normally, from my experience, you give them the best, so by the time they've had enough to drink, they're so drunk, they can't taste the difference between good wine and bad wine. And this wine is so good, it's way better than the very first wine that you have offered. What is Jesus doing? Something different, something new. He's taking the most ordinary of substance and turning it into something extraordinary again we'll move on to significance and application but let's keep moving on in the story i'm giving you hints here and i know you're chomping at the bits to see what's really going on look at verse 11 
Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. What did he reveal? He revealed his glory, and the disciples believed in him. John does not call this a miracle. He calls this a sign. What's the difference? A sign is not only a display of power, but rather points to something that is much deeper, a deeper reality that can only be seen through the eyes of faith. A miracle is simply a display of power. A sign is a display of power that points to something more significant and more meaningful, and the only way you can see it is through eyes of faith. And John tells us, but by this very sign that Jesus did, what does he reveal? He reveals his glory. And in the prologue, what do we read about the glory? We read about the glory of the one and only who came from the Father that is full of grace and truth. Remember how we said the prologue is like a foyer? It introduces themes to us and it unpacks it for us and the rest of the book of John. So now we're reading this glory from the Father. He came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And now all of a sudden we start to see what this glory is looking like. And we know that through the rest of this text, his glory will be revealed. And the greatest place it will be revealed is on the cross. And then he will receive his glory at the resurrection and exaltation. But every stop at the course of the cross is a glimpse of what that glory is looking like. And this is what John is trying to show us. But notice, who was this glory made visible to? Was it made visible to all to see? No. The servants saw the same thing the disciples saw. The servants saw a miracle. They never saw the glory. The disciples, on the other hand, saw the sign. They saw the meaning behind it. And through eyes of faith, they saw the glory of Jesus revealed. And they responded in faith by believing in him. And this is what John is trying to show us. Now, I know I've been teasing you with, with meanings and significance and giving you a little bit just to kind of whet the appetite. You're like, okay, I'm kind of tracking with you. L let's talk about it now. What's the significance? What's really going on in this text? What is Jesus displaying? I think that the very first thing is that obviously the transforming power of Jesus is the overarching sign. It's, it's the overarching theme of what's happening. But there's so much going on in the story. So, so if you're taking notes, here's the very first thing that's going on in the story. Jesus came to bring a new way. This is what's going on. He is showing his disciples. John is trying to show me and you, uh, you and me, that, that, that Jesus has come to bring in a new way. Let, let me illustrate. Jesus asked the servants to take these, these water jars, fill it up to the brim. 
The purpose of these water jars were meant to cleanse and for ceremonial purification. They were meant to clean people on the outside. And filling these jars to the brim indicated the fulfillment of the ceremonial washing. They are completely fulfilled. And what does Jesus do? He comes in and he ushers a new way. He came to be the one who would purify his people by not cleaning their actions or cleaning their exterior, but rather he came to clean us from the inside out. He came to give us a new heart, to take our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. He came to make us as white as snow. And in a sense, uh, what's happening in this story is this idea that the old system of exterior perfection, of exterior purification, is put to the side. And a new way had come. A better way had come. A more sufficient way had come. And what do we know? What, What did Jesus do? He came to fulfill the law. All of the symbolism, all of the meaning of the Old Testament in the law would find their fulfillment in Jesus. And so he's giving us a hint of how Jesus came to bring a new way. The the second significant is this. Not only did he come to bring a new way, but Jesus displayed extravagant grace. He displayed extravagant grace. Think about this. Jesus didn't have to intervene. Because he said, my hour has not come yet. And if he did intervene, he only had to make just enough wine for everybody. He could have made an inferior wine because people had too much to drink anyway. But what does he do? He intervenes. And the wine continued It never ran out. Think about this. As long as there was water in that well and they were drawing from the well, what would never run out? The wine. And not only was it a wine that would never run out, but what does the head waiter say? This is one of the most superior wines, the best of wines I have ever tasted. Think about this extravagant grace here. Think about the meaning here. The church is called the what of Christ, the body and the bride. If we are the bride of Christ, who's the groom? Jesus. So in a sense, Jesus is the groom. And what is his responsibility? His responsibility as the groom is to supply with the best of food and the best of wine for this great wedding feast that's going to take place. And in Revelation chapter 19, what does it talk about? A great wedding banquet of the finest of wine as we sit in the presence of the groom. And really what this is showing us is Jesus provides the best of wine. Now in communion... What does the wine symbolize? The blood. Think about what's going on here. Jesus is the groom. And in his extravagant grace, he provides the wine, a.k.a. his blood. And what does his blood do? 
His blood washes us, cleanses us. His blood removes all of our guilt, all of our shame. His blood makes us new. His blood covers us, provides this abundant refreshment. And it's not just a blood that is just enough to get you by, but as a blood that is totally sufficient. Where Paul will even say, where sin increases, grace increases all the more. In other words, what that means for you is you cannot outsin the cross. The more sin, the more blood. This is what it means by Jesus providing an abundance of wine, a wine that would never run out, a superior wine, a superior blood that could cover all of your sins, your sins in the past, your sins in the present, and even your sins in the future. The blood that can remove all of your guilt, all of your shame, and forgive you once and forever. This is what he is showing up. And as all of our guilt and all of our shame is removed, all of our hope is now in the groom to provide abundantly, extravagantly, more than sufficiently. And so at this great wedding feast, we'll be feasting on the wine in the presence of our Savior, where we will be free from sin, sickness, death, sadness in the presence of our Lord and we will proclaim he has saved the best wine until now. The last one, if you're taking notes, is not only does Jesus come to bring a new way and he displays his extravagant grace, but verse 11 is obvious. What did Jesus do? He came to reveal his glory. What is his glory? He came to reveal his power over all things, his grace towards humanity. And the result of his glory, and this is what John is going to continually point out, is to believe in him. The things that Jesus did and said caused people to believe in him. They saw his glory. They saw the face of God. Everything changed. God came now to dwell among them, and they would never be the same. Like, this is what's happening in this miracle. He came to bring in a new way. He came to display his extravagant grace, and he came to reveal his glory. So what does that mean for us? What's the application for us? What that means for us is we can take heart in the transforming power of Jesus. That he has come not just to make you better, not just to modify you, not just to clean you on the outside and get your actions together, but rather he came to make you brand new. He is cleansing you from the inside out. He's not just doing modifications on you, but he gives you a brand new heart. He makes you as white as snow. And that means for us that our guilt, our shame is gone. We are new. The old has gone. The new has come. Like no longer do we have to work to earn the favor of God. No longer do we have to purify ourselves and cleanse ourselves so that God can accept us and love us. 
but rather he freely lavishes his favor on his sons and daughters, not because of our behavior, not because of the purification rituals we've gone through, but because of the cross of Christ that has cleansed us once and for all. And this provision is sweet, and this provision is overflowing. It reaches every part of the brokenness of our lives, and it extends for the rest of our life, and it is abundant. The new has come. The glory has been revealed. And the only response is what? Believe in his name. Let me pray for us as we get to sit at the table and we drink this wine and we eat this bread as we feast on the body of Christ and drink his blood. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercy, for your grace. I thank you that you didn't come to make things better. You came to make all things new. You took the old, you fulfilled it, and you replaced it with something far superior, something far more sufficient. And Lord, my, my, my prayer for us is as we hear this, can you help us to see your glory? Can these not just be words that fall on deaf ears and say, oh, that's nice, that's cute, I like that. But can we look to you can we behold you and in faith see the glory that has been revealed? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get ready to sit at the table, these elements are reminders of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for us. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, Every time that we eat and drink, we're proclaiming his death. We're reminded of how his body was broken for us, how his blood was shed for us, and how it's sufficient in making us new, how it cleanses us from the inside out. And we're not eating and drinking these things so that we can be clean. We're eating and drinking these things because we've been made clean. They are simply reminders for us. Because when we feel condemned, when we're overwhelmed by our guilt and our shame and we feel like that we are not worthy, that we can't sit at this table because we did not perform well enough this week, this table tells you you're dead wrong, buddy. Because what's on this table is far more sufficient, far more superior than your guilt and shame. It's taken care of. Look to the cross. You will never run out of blood to cover your sins. So in your guilt and in your shame, run to the cross. Cling to Jesus for his blood to purify you, to make you clean. Trust in his transforming power to make you new. The old has gone, the new has come. And so this table reminds us of this reality. Because we are a people that are quick to forget. And just when we're about to condemn ourselves, we take up these elements and we say, I am in Christ and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Thank you for your body. Thank you for your blood. What you've done for me is superior and sufficient. I praise you, Lord Jesus.
help me to realize the reality of this newness of life that you have given me by your grace. Help me to be reminded that I am accepted and that I am loved. And nothing I can do will change that because I am in Christ. Thank you. Let's distribute these elements. And as our ushers are distributing these elements, meditate on these truths. See how Jesus has taken care of your guilt and your shame and your sin. Did everybody receive the elements? I want you to think about this. As you look at your own life and you're confronted with your sins and you feel guilty, you feel embarrassed, you're overwhelmed by shame, you feel unworthy, you feel condemned. And what we have a tendency to do is we go to the jars filled with water and we try to take that water and to scrub us clean, but the problem is it's not working. And my question for you is why go to the jars where you cannot clean yourself if the well is right next to it? The well that is provided with the new wine, the well that's provided with the living water, the well that represents the cross of Jesus Christ, where his body was broken for you, where he paid for your sins in full, he died in your place. And how do you know it? You look to the cross, and you're reminded of the cross. As you look at this bread, and you eat it in remembrance of him where his body was broken for you, eat it in remembrance of him. And then you look to the cup, this new wine that represents his blood the covenant that is sufficient, that is extravagant, that covers all of your guilt and your shame, all of your sins. It never ends. It's overflowing. It is abundant. Drink it in remembrance of him and thank him for that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the provision that you've made for us by sending your Son who dwelt among us, who revealed his glory, and who received his glory on the cross. Where he lived a life I could not live, and he died a death I was supposed to die where all of my sins was nailed, my sins in the past, present, and future, where his blood is sufficient to cover all of my sins, where his blood is extraordinary because it makes me as white as snow. It makes me brand new. 
Lord, may we believe as we see your glory. May we cling to you. May we run to you. May we stop wasting our time at these purification jars trying to change our actions. May we realize that does not work. It does not fix a thing. May we run to the well. May we run to the cross where you've made provisions. May we see your glory and may we believe and have life in your name. We thank you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Let us stand. Let us worship.